Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. Today I am joined by guest Alexander Lapa. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. For folks who maybe haven't heard your name before, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, certainly. So my name is Alex. Um, people, I write my name as Alexander, but please just call me Alex. Okay. And I am a, a Salesforce architect specialized in nonprofits. In addition to that, I do so project implementation. In addition to that, I have an app that I built for the Salesforce uh, ecosystem, as well as I am a podcast host for nonprofits. And I am a content creator uh, writing a newsletter to help junior Salesforce consultants level up. Great. Awesome. Love it. People will be familiar with the model. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so uh, in our Slack room, we're together in a Slack room, and you mentioned that you had a success story about going from hourly to fixed pricing. And uh, I wanted to have you on to, to basically just share that kind of case study with the audience to see if there's anything they can learn from your success. That sounds great. Great. So where does it, let's start, let's start back in the hourly days, the dark days. What was that like? What were you doing? How long ago was that? Sort of like paint the picture of where you started out. Yeah, and of course, I'm going to age myself and date myself by this process. But um, just to go back even before the hourly part. Um, so I started a computer engineering degree from university. First, first six years, I was doing software development for a typical full-time employee situation. Um, and then it was about 20 years ago that I was introduced to the world of CRM. At the time, the CRM of choice was one called Siebel CRM, and that is when I started my company and started billing by the hour. Uh, at that time, though, I usually had about one client, so there wasn't much difference between myself and a full-time employee. I was just charging more for my time. Right. Then about 10 years ago, I switched from Siebel CRM to Salesforce, and it was about two years ago that I switched from hourly to billing, uh, fixed billing. Mm, excellent. I almost want to talk about the switch from Siebel to Salesforce. That must have been interesting. Um, but let's, yeah. we'll put a pin in that though. So, uh, you like jumping platform specialization is something that you sometimes have to do with a platform specialization. Um, okay. So what back then, sorry, when, uh, how long ago would that have been when you started hourly billing doing Salesforce? Uh, doing Salesforce was 10 years ago. Hourly billing in total was 20 years ago. And I'm happy to zoom in into any, any element you want to talk about sure. uh, as we go through the conversation. Sure. Cool. Uh, we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, let's, let's just do it. Like, why tease the audience? So, why the switch from, I mean, I can guess, but what were your, what were your motivations at the time from switching horses from Siebel to Salesforce? Was it just the writings on the wall? Were you... Um, and what was the writing? Were you noticing decrease leads? Were you noticing increase in leads from Salesforce? What was what was that? Because when people do have a platform specialization, their fortunes kind of rise and fall with the platform. So mm -hmm. when the platform starts to go down, not that Siebel did necessarily, but you know Salesforce certainly eclipsed it. So yeah, what was what was the thought process like back then? I mean, you already called it. It was really the writing on the wall where Siebel was on its way down, or at least not growing versus Salesforce, which was doubling every other week, it felt like. It was really just taking over the entire CRM ecosystem. So it came as a matter of opportunity. It was basically an organization that uh, started with Siebel, and I was asked to come in to help. I was at that point more of an architect already. So they were 
existing organization using Sable, and then they were transitioning to Salesforce. And I kind of followed them on that journey. But then at the same time, it just started appearing all these different other opportunities in the Salesforce ecosystem. So uh, I figured, you know, there's no point looking back and let's just switch between the two, carry as much you know, knowledge that I can between these two systems, mostly soft skills at that point, a few technical ones as well. Um, and then, you know, look forward to the, the new platform. Cool. And was it, did it feel really, it sounds really organic. Did it feel that way or were you nervous about it? It was organic. I didn't, uh, it was, yeah, I didn't think too much about it. It was really the opportunity. I was working for an agency. It was a media company, uh, again, and that kind of full-time role in the sense that I was a consultant, but just charging hourly for my time. It was going to be a long-term contract. So I felt this was going to be a, a very stable transition and it was a worthy skill to learn uh, at the time. Okay. It seemed like a safe bet. All right, great. Mm -hmm. So, so, okay. Now you're in the Salesforce ecosystem, still billing hourly. What were the pros and cons of that? Uh, because like 99% of my revenue came from one client and I knew it was going to be a multi-year, like it was a one-year renewable type of contract, I felt it was pretty safe to be there for a while. And I did try, but just not too, with too much effort at least, looking for additional clients outside of that, basically smaller nonprofits uh, at the time. Um, and it was just, it just kept on it was stagnant. I mean, there was no growth. Yes, I would get a percent increase every year in terms of hourly rates, but there was obviously a ceiling that I could charge. I couldn't do, you know, $500, $1,000 an hour kind of thing. Hmm. And were you working basically 40 hours a week or billing 30, 40 hours? Yes. Yeah, exactly. 40 hours a week. Okay. All right. So that felt like a ceiling. You felt stagnant. And what did the, what was your first step into something other than hourly? Yeah, so we're talking about just under two years ago. And at that time, to paint the picture, I was now working with an agency, a Salesforce agency. And they were basically um, sending me contracts or offering me contracts. And I would pick and choose as I needed. And at that time, I was working with maybe between two and five clients at a time, at different hourly rates. But they were they were controlling the hourly rates because, of course, they had a margin on top of their rates to, to bill to the client. Mm -hmm. And were you part um, of the sales process with any of those or was it kind of like, hey, do you want this? It's it's a done deal. We're going to give it to you or someone else. That's right. It, I was more on the project side. So once the sale was closed, they basically had to scale up the team. And then they asked if uh, I was interested in it, probably right before the closing date, just to make sure that you know the team was locked in place before the actual people were chosen. Okay. All right. Great. Well, wh what, what happened next? How did that change? Yeah, but... Just under two years ago, I uh, was introduced through a conversation to the concept of um, uh, value-based pricing. And it was through a designer friend of mine. And the first time I heard about it, I really thought it was some mumbo jumbo pyramid scheme. It didn't, didn't fly right. It took actually <laughs> another six months uh, for, for me to wrap my head around the idea that you could potentially charge clients based on the value that you bring, not just an hourly rate. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that definitely was a, a process to get around. And then yeah. it was just a matter of consuming as much as I can about value-based pricing, how to do it, what are the options, and and then start experimenting from there. What can be done, what works in the Salesforce ecosystem might be different than other platforms or other specializations. And so I kind of, through trial and error, got my way to the point where I'm at now and happy to dive into those details. Yeah, let's do it. Let's just keep going. Uh, well, I'm curious. I mean, obviously... Uh, at some point you heard of me, but were there other people that you were exposed to that were preaching the value pricing approach, value-based pricing? 
I, I did hear of Chris Doe, and I did see the YouTube video where he was interviewing yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just found that because of our software background that we had in common, I resonated more with what your messaging was. It was more in line with you know where I was and where I was going. So for the most part, it was most of your content. Hmm. Okay, good to know. Um, lots of other good people out there talking about this thing, but that's good to know. Um, okay, and what was your experience with... Uh, trying it for the first time do you remember the first time you had a conversation with a, like a prospect where you know you had to kind of like think in a new way and and have a different script to read so to speak yeah so i consumed as much as i could based on things that you published um and the idea of having that why conversation obviously is it takes a lot of practice that first time was was i was quite nervous not quite sure what to say what not to say um but I think the first, or at least one of the first contracts I got was one of my most lucrative ones. And it, mm. it really floored me to see the capabilities of, of shifting from hourly to billing. Um, and it was an advisory role. It was basically an agency that needed help. Their, their employees were not um, as efficient as they could be. They needed a bit more guidance technically and on the soft side. And I came in as an advisor more at a ad hoc, um, ad hoc basis as opposed to a fixed number of hours. Mm -hmm. And I listed the number of services that I would do and wouldn't do at the various price points. And I was only called in when needed. And mm -hmm. it ended up being a four month contract where I was only meeting them twice a week. And the, the, hour, the effective hourly rate was, was ridiculous. I couldn't, it was, I felt bad, not bad, but I, I was, I felt like I was overcharging or I wasn't producing the value maybe that they could have gotten or I'm not used to getting. The, the, the numbers were just in, were all over the place and <laughs> it took a while for me to get used to it. And I'm still getting used to it in some contexts, even today, wanting to not prove my value, but at least feel that I'm I'm doing everything that I can within the list of services that I can provide. Yeah, that's that's the tension is that a lot of times, especially when you're new to it and you just, the numbers are staggering. I mean, and for the listener, it doesn't always work like that. Alex obviously was in a situation where the value was very high. So like the value of, of whatever it was that you were delivering in the particular case, it was very high. Sometimes it's not, in which case the price isn't astronomical, but it, but it does happen that the numbers can be staggering when the value is really high and you're selling your brains instead of your hands. So there's not a lot of mm -hmm. work, so to speak. And there's a temptation to do more, to over deliver, to do things that are out of your own scope boundaries or like, you know, doing services that, yeah, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I feel kind of bad about all these checks that you're sending me in, <laughs> right? So that that is a danger. You don't want to do that. It's just going to devalue you. It's it's not a not a fatal error, but it is a something that you want to train yourself to do less and less as you get more used to it. It okay. takes time to get adjusted to that. I mean, I, I do hold myself back from doing it, but there's always that temptation. And I do have a, a story which was the opposite of that success story, in which case the project was supposed to be simple. It ended up being quite medium level, let's say complex, mm -hmm. but I held my price. It was still uh, you know, a fixed price and they got a lot of value because we had to re-engineer a whole bunch of things just to make the, the top level work. So mm -hmm. there are some situations which are very, very profitable, let's say, and some which are definitely less so. Right, yes. And my experience is that that happened to me once. I, I, there's one project that stands out that where I, I my effective hourly hourly rate was pretty average uh, but still 
you know, the client was great. I loved them. They loved me. We never fought about an invoice because there weren't any. And I just stuck to my, yep. my price. And so everyone was, I don't know if the same happened with you, but the client was perfectly happy. There was no real hard deadline. They just wanted it done when it was ready. They felt bad for me, actually. They felt yeah. like they are getting more than they asked for. In a sense, they did, but I, I was, it was right. The, the relationship, even after the moment where we realized that there was a lot more work to be done, it was uh, amicable all the way through. I mean, I even met them recently uh, when they came to my town to have a, a drink kind of thing. So yeah, really, really great relationship. And I hope that there'll be future projects coming in the future too. Yeah, it's it's shocking how different it is switching to that sort of scoping last. And then, you know, you, you do things to miti mitigate those risks by doing the opposite of what people generally do when they're selling hours where they try and make the project as big as possible when you are setting a price and you want and you're going to stick to it the sort of the, the incentives are for at least me and my risk tolerance my, my incentive is to make the project as small as possible because if mm -hmm. i'm wrong it won't be a year of me ending up making 200 dollars an hour you know so exactly. it's like i want it to be you know, a month, a weekend back when I'm, I don't do software anymore, but when I was doing that, I, it was funny because <laughs> clients would sometimes be like, you know, it, just, it seems like you're talking yourself out of money. It seems like you're trying to t talk us out of hiring you. And I'm like, I am, I, I don't want you to pay me if it's not going to be a huge home run for you. And so I would just go around looking for huge home runs. And those are the kinds of situations when the numbers can really get big fast. Okay. So we're just sort of like, we're both kind of, uh, kind of preaching to the choir in both directions, but you know, for <laughs> folks listening, it's nice to hear someone besides me having a similar experience and going through all the steps. So, okay. So, uh, I mean, this was, this was only two years ago, right? So how yep. many, ha, uh, has it gotten easier and easier as you go along? Definitely. I started building like a template of things to say during that why conversation, uh, I started building a template of the proposal. I started with that five-page proposal that you wrote and, of course, modified it to my own um, verbiage. Right. And I now have it, depending on the, the kind of project that I work on, I have kind of a master template that I can be able to remove sections or add sections as needed. So I don't need to think about it too long. So pumping these things out you know, are maybe four or five pages still, but it takes like an hour, no more. Mm. So and, definitely... And for if you know, have to share numbers, but like in order of magnitude is like a four or five page proposal. Are we talking like five, six figures or, or four or five figures? The, so these days I typically do a monthly re monthly, not monthly retainer, as I was going to say, but it's actually a monthly package of some kind. Okay. Um, it's not quite a retainer. Sometimes it is, but it's mostly a package where I'm doing some kind of cognitive work, more less and less hands-on as I try to move forward. Got it. Um, so it's it's more of a monthly package as opposed to a project bill, a project price. Okay. And in that regard, it, it ends up being yeah four digits, four okay. or five digits. Yeah. Yeah, monthly. So cool. So for folks following along at home, now we're talking about sort of productized subscription service, like an advisory. I call them advisory retainers. You can call them whatever you want, but it's basically access to your thinking, your advice your but not you know your brains uh, but it's not staff augmentation where you alex or or uh, anybody else is sitting there just kind of typing semicolons or configuring salesforce or building views or reports or it's like you're advising people you're answering questions you're giving advice and and people who are in the right situation for you know where they stand to benefit from that to have someone that 
they trust as an expert in this particular undertaking is like buying an insurance policy to increase the odds that they're going to maximize their investment in whatever they're doing, whether it's a project or uh, annual license or whatever. Uh, they're maximizing their investment there. They're de-risking it by bringing in someone who can just give a great answer right on the spot or very quickly that that they trust. So they don't have to Google around and be like, eh, I don't know if this is the right way to do it. Stack Overflow says this. Um, <laughs> cool. So that so so are these? Do you price these per client, or do you have basically a rate that is essentially the same regardless? And you let the clients kind of disqualify themselves if it's too expensive. Yeah, I haven't gotten into the productized services market just yet in terms of fixed price per or regardless of the client. Mm -hmm. So it is tiered based on the size of the client or the size of the project or my involvement, of course, you know, with those three options. Okay. And one of the advantages that I have is by working in the nonprofit space, the nonprofit uh, annual revenue is published. Yeah. So I have direct access to their financials to be able to give me at least a one leg up in addition to, of course, the why conversation uh, about how to how to price it. And then obviously over time, I figure out, I know that based on the ones that I lose, the, the contracts don't, I, the proposals that are not accepted, uh, if it's too high and then I can adjust and then you know find that happy path or happy medium between yep. the two. Yep. How you mentioned nonprofit several times here. How important do you think it is for you to have that sort of focus on a particular target market? I mean, it's pretty big. Nonprofit's still pretty big, but um, how important do you think that is in terms of setting your fees higher than you would otherwise, differentiating yourself from the competition, attracting inbound leads, knowing what to write about on your daily mailing list? Like, how important is that piece? Could you have just as easily? You know, just say, I just do Salesforce consulting full stop. Yeah, I mean, it's everything. You, you have to specialize. There are so many players and consultants and architects in, and developers in the Salesforce ecosystem that if you just say, I'm a you know, seven-time Salesforce consultant, it's absolutely meaningless. <laughs> and uh, I've had many people come to me asking for work, and they just you know, give me that kind of title, and I don't know what to do with them. There is that, you said, you said before, that Rolodex moment, because they're so generic, they could be swapped in and out with anybody else mm -hmm. and offer nothing extra. So one of the things that I did in order to switch to um, fixed prices and to separate myself and to improve my marketing was decide that uh, nonprofits is the space I would love to spend more time on. So I kind of, um, I specialize, I don't necessarily say no to other for-profit companies, but I definitely uh, am limited in those choices. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, I don't want to choose them if, I, if everything is else is equal. But um, yeah, marketing becomes so much easier. I talk to you know my clients who are nonprofits, and I use their verbiage as opposed to I help people solve problems. <laughs> I can now say I help nonprofits with their fundraising or their uh, improved operations or you know, volunteering. I can use those kinds of words to help me market myself much better and become known as the Salesforce nonprofit guy. Right. Yeah. It, like you're one of us. Like they see the language. It's not just generic word salad of mm -hmm. you know smart people solving hard problems. So, okay, cool. All right. So we've got, we've got so many things going on here. So we've got sort of, it's, it's not a, the prices are not productized for the, uh, what do you call the retainer? Do you call it a subscription? It's not, it's not the price isn't set, but it, is it recurring open-ended recurring or does it have like a stop date? You should open-ended your recurring. I try for a minimum of three months just to make sure that they feel that they're getting their value. Yeah. Uh, but it is open-ended with a certain period of time for cancellation. 
Uh, and I would call them either up. I mean, we can use the word managed package for the for the most okay. part. It's some kind of, it could be the an advisory type thing. It could be a project oversight type of situation. It could be a, a coaching and training type of thing. Uh, those are generally the three buckets that I would fall into that uh, managed package. Okay, so let's let's let me write that down. You said advisory, coaching. What was the? So advisory, um, advisory coaching would be one, let's say. Well, no, okay. actually, advisory would be one. Yep. Just high level, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to think about. Here's you know design architecture type stuff. Yep. Second one would be project oversight, oversight, where I'm helping either it's an internal team or an external team to the client, and I'm making sure that they have certain guardrails, best practices. I might serve as a single point of contact, for example, for the client so that they have any questions they don't need to ask the team for work or for information they can ask me yep. and then the third one was more mentoring and coaching which is training staff to be better faster stronger okay all right and when people are choosing are they choosing between these things or are they inclusive like two includes one and three includes one and two generally they know what they want and it's one of the three and i might okay. offer different levels within those three mm-hmm. um offering different elements because uh, I, I can always add some additional value to it um, or reduce it depending on on the need. Okay, so so through conversation, through the why conversation and and your sales interview, you're going to, are you going to come to kind of a conclusion around which one of these three buckets the prospect probably falls into and then send them a proposal for three options of that one? Is that how it goes? That's right. Okay, cool. So you kind of, all right, that's very interesting. I, I haven't talked to someone who does this, but it makes total sense. And f- just for an example, to give somebody an idea, what might be three options of one of these things? You can pick whichever one's easiest, like like oversight. What are the three ways, three options that you'd present for over project oversight or one of the other ones, if that's easier? Yeah, we can do oversight. Um, so one I did, for example, was... Uh, and this is going back a year now because it's been a, already a year in that contract, but it was one of my one of my favorite actually projects. It's um, so base level was making sure that the the team is doing what they need to be doing, but I wouldn't attend like daily meetings or scrums. Uh, I wouldn't attend. It was more like a on call basis, so they can reach out to me what they want to, but I don't attend regular meetings. Mm-hmm. Anybody Number on the two team is, or just the the buyer? Just, yeah, I would, I mean, I would have certain people who could reach out to me, uh, through Slack or through email. I would answer them. I could jump on a call on a more of an ad hoc basis, but no real fixed meetings. It's more a matter of, um, you know, when you call me when you need me kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second one was a bit more, it was, was the sweet spot. It was the one actually I was helping they would go for and they did. It's really, uh, I'm kind of like an employee. I have a quite a list of things to cover. I am in regular meetings and uh and guiding things and looking at user stories to make sure that the the work is being done uh, properly there's a bit of review but there's no i don't have to sign off on anything i don't have to uh it's more like i'm i'm providing my feedback as they're going along as they're doing their work okay and then what would be a third level third level is i'm also in addition to being salesforce certified i'm also user experience certified so i'm able to add all that layer on top of that saying in addition to everything else i'll make sure that the user experience is top notch Okay. Wow. Wild. All right. So how long do these contracts typically last? Like gut instinct, not scientific here, but do they, you said they, you know, usually a three month minimum because you're not going to really get anywhere quicker than that. But then once you get past that point, are they, do you measure them in months or years or how does that usually work out? 
Yeah, so I do measure them by the month, and they range anywhere between uh, three months to the longest right now, which I think is about 15, 16 months. Okay. And how do they usually end? Like, what happens? Were, were you focused on a particular project that ships, or do they they just feel like, well, we got a lot of value out of, out of you at the beginning, but it's decreasing because the whatever, because we can kind of figure it out from here? Like, how do those things tail off? It depends on which of those three categories we're talking about. Uh, for the oversight one, there is an expected end date, which is in 2025, because they're going to be releasing the entire Salesforce platform uh, to the rest of the organization. So I imagine there's going to be an endpoint there with the possibility of, of a future phase at some point. Yep. Uh, if it's a coaching mentoring thing, usually it ends up being uh, on the smaller side, three to four months kind of thing. Once they feel that they're employees can stand up on their own two feet and their budget basically has has died mm -hmm. okay um yep and the project okay. i mean there is project work as well too i haven't really we haven't spoken about that too much there is once in a while i do a project you know fixed price project based type work mm -hmm. and obviously when that project is finished uh, that's when right. the project ends yeah that's almost part of my definition of a project is that it has an end yeah. um how many of these month-to-month -month subscription clients can you handle at a time? I know they're all different levels of involvement, but how many looking just historically, how many have you had going concurrently? Ideally, I find that it's um, too large and too small. Um, and I don't know what the exact definition of large and small is, but let's say I have one client now that I meet twice a week for about an hour. Uh, there's no homework for me to do. It's really just a guiding process. So that would put that into a small category okay. versus the one that was a project oversight where I'm attending meetings, you know, maybe what, 15, that's a bit high, maybe 10 hours of meetings a week, plus a bit of work and review work to be done. That would be a large one. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right. And, and on top of that, you also can do, you have time to do project. So, so how many hours per week would you normally devote to, uh, these subscription clients? If you had too large and too small, would you be pretty booked solid and you couldn't do a project or is it, is that you still have time that you could? With too large, too small, I still have a bit more bandwidth. Um, it, it, it does vary, of course, because I'm working on my app. I got that Salesforce app that I mentioned that has to be uh, progressed and evolved and, and worked on. Mm -hmm. And of course, the podcast and the newsletter and so forth. So I, I always make sure that there's a certain portion of my week that's reserved for those kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. um, that's, but I'm, I'm, I don't even know. I don't track hours so much <laughs> anymore. <laughs> But at Ballpark, I'm probably doing close to 40, 50 hours a week. I do enjoy what I do, mm -hmm. so I do consider it to be a labor of love, mm -hmm. and therefore I don't mind spending a few more hours um, doing it. Okay, so we we need to talk about projects and how you price those and also product because you have that too because so many things going on. But before we do that, yeah. let's let's loop back to the beginning. You know, two years ago you were feeling like your income was stagnant doing hourly working about the same it sounds like so yes yes so yes. income wise i mean this is supposed to be a success story so like what can you if your hours if you if the amount of time that you're working labor of love or otherwise is relatively uh, consistent then presumably your revenue has increased is that true yeah actually i had written in the slack channel at one point kind of my high level success story uh and i call it the before js and the after js moments <laughs> okay and the the before js you know billing by the hour 95 percent of my income was through this agency they dictated my hourly rate and i was working definitely 40 plus hours and i hit that income ceiling uh, that you mentioned a couple of times where you just can't get past it because i can't charge you know 
crazy numbers. Can't yeah, right. And then, you know, it took about a year, at, just under a year, I think, to start really sinking my teeth into the whole concept of value-based pricing and fixed pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the after JS moment was, you know, specializing in the nonprofit industry. Uh, only 5% of my income came from that agency. And that actually agency ended up being purchased by another agency. So I would have lost all my income, oh, wow. uh, at least 95% of my income had I continued in that route. So it was like a, that was a big moment for me. I mm. uh, started the podcast, started the product, started the uh, the newsletter. Mm -hmm. Then basically 90% of my time was dedicated to some kind of productized service or um, the monthly packages I mentioned. Yep. And um, some projects were highly, highly profitable. So I was, and my income doubled. So I was working more or less the same amount of time and literally my income doubled. Nice. That's a good sign. And I want to ask about your client relationships in this model do you notice a difference in your relationships with the clients in this model yes definitely it's it's much more of a collaborative and friendly approach as opposed to a more of a bloodthirsty type of thing <laughs> part of it though it is working the fact that i'm they are i mean yeah, part of it is the nonprofit space that kind of industry does attract a certain type of person that is less interested in ego and you know providing value to shareholders it's more about the impact to the community and mm -hmm. the mission so that that is definitely an element of it but the idea of being more being perceived more as an expert in a particular industry in a particular platform um i'm much more of an authority now than i ever was before so that is in itself gives me a lot more um credibility the, the voice is louder so to speak mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a more pleasant experience. I mean, you know, when projects do go sideways, it's still pleasant. It's it's uh, so I know it's tremendous mind, mind blowing pressure, right? And and the biggest thing that I had was always taking vacations. And I have actually a really funny story for you. Okay, there was a moment when I was billing by the hour, and I was very stressed about that, to the point where my wife had a appointment that she needed me to drive her to. And I had to do, I did the mathematical calculation of how much it would cost me to, to drive her myself to the appointment, wait for her and bring her back as opposed to taking an Uber because of the lost income I was going to have during that hour. I mean, that's. Yeah, I'm sure she, I, hopefully you didn't say that. <laughs> well, we actually, no, no, we got into an argument about it. It was yeah, really exactly. bad. <laughs> right. Like, how does that make someone feel? You're not worth yeah, this that, much. Uh, You're not worth this, my hour. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, this, this is the right wording for it. And of course, in any time I want to take a vacation, right? Not only time are you spending time away from the computer, uh, or uh, not only are you spending time to get there, buying the plane tickets to get to the destination and, and spending the money to be on the vacation, you also have that lost income when you're on vacation, mm -hmm. as opposed to this past week where I was at the cottage and... Uh, you know, I, I, there was no change in my income. It was because it's hourly. They understood I'm away for this week and it's all good because it all kind of works itself out in the end. Yeah. Cause it's not hourly. Yes. It's not hourly. Fabulous. All right. Okay. That's exactly what I was hoping to hear. Of course. So, and, and even better, even better. Okay. So let's, let's jump over to projects real quick. Cause a lot of people, when they're starting out, they're used to doing projects. Uh, maybe they do staff log and then that's a different category. But if you're, if you're pretty good and, uh, you're, you're attracting some kind of clients, you get some kind of name for yourself as, you know, like back in the day, I was doing FileMaker development. And uh, fortunately for me, I lucked into having a recognizable name because I wrote in a magazine and spoke at the conference. So it was like, oh, we trust this, this person to do our FileMaker project. So I would get projects. 
how do you get projects? How do they come along? And what what kinds of things? Well, let's start there. How, how do project types of things come along? Inbound, outbound, uh, referrals? How do you find out about these things? There's a various, a few handful, let's say, of, of methods. The first one is referrals. That tends to be my strongest one so far. And I think it's attributed to the fact that they, I am starting to be known, at least, as the nonprofit uh, Salesforce guy. Mm-hmm. So referrals are a strong one. Um, LinkedIn is, a, is getting better now because I'm posting some of my newsletters on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So uh, example was I had done a series recently about a Salesforce center of excellence. And it was like a 13 day long email because I chunked them all out. Yep. And it just so happened that someone saw it on LinkedIn, forwarded it to their boss, and they approached me and saying, look, we just won a contract to build a Salesforce center of excellence for a client. Can you lead it? So it's like, pff, what, a, what timing. Yeah. So the funny thing uh, about that, here's a funny side story about that is I'll write a random email on a random day and at least once a week, someone is like, you know, they'll reply with like, are you reading my mind? Do you have a camera in my office? Uh, this came at the perfect <laughs> time. And, and it reminds me, I think it was Chet Holmes in the ultimate sales machine, which is just a really spammy title for a book, but, but it is a good book. And one thing he talks about is like, if you're standing in front of a room of people of a hundred people and you know, you sell cars, there's probably only one person in the whole room that's currently in the market to buy a car right now, but pretty much, yeah, 1% of the people are ready for this thing right now. So if you're, if you have a high, a large enough audience, I guess, then it's almost certain that anything you write is going to be at the perfect moment for somebody in that group, whether it's, whether it's just an, an insight or um, a free tip or, uh, or a, an offer like a paid thing or a lead magnet or whatever it is. If, if you can get a bigger, bigger audience, then it's, you kind of improve your luck surface. You increase your luck surface area because if you have enough eyeballs on it, somebody's in, in need of that thing. Anyway, I just, that's a, a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to point that out. Okay. So, that project is has that so they came up perf- the perfect time is that deal still up in the air or is that closed or well, the, what's yeah really funny end to that story it ended really quickly because the first meeting that we had with the client since they won that rfp contract the client said yeah we need to suspend this project indefinitely because of other priorities that just came up so it, it 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 ended as soon as it landed but it it was still in the moment, uh, a really cool thing to happen. Yeah, that's a big win. Yeah, I've had plenty of plenty of weird stories where people get project green light, uh, project sponsor fired. Um, mm-hmm. um, okay, so a lot of referrals. Uh, LinkedIn has been useful. When a project comes along, you, I'm gonna correct me where I'm wrong. You're going to jump on the phone with hopefully the economic buyer. You're gonna have a sales interview. You're gonna do the why conversation. And, and at the end, you're going to say, Hey, I, I think I've got a few ideas of ways we could work together that'd be mutually beneficial. I'm going to put together a short proposal and send that over on Wednesday. Does that sound good? Sort of like that, like the normal. Yep. Exactly. Normal approach. Okay. Great. And what are, what kinds of, like, what's happening? We haven't really talked too much about what's happening inside of the client organization with regard to Salesforce. So like what, what's a typical project? Is it like a migration from another platform to Salesforce or what are the kinds of projects that might, that that you, your ideal projects, the ones that you want to have land in your lap? 
So just to level set the audience, uh, Salesforce is a platform. It's a company and it's a platform. And Salesforce will sell you the platform and you can kind of use it out of the box, but you don't really want to. You really want to spend the time customizing it for your business needs, whether it be certain automations, emails, um, certain integrations to other systems. So that's where I come in to help, you know, bring up, bring Salesforce or customize Salesforce in the way that you want it to be customized. Okay. Um, What's so the, I've, I've never used Salesforce for, for a ideal buyer, an ideal client mm -hmm. for you. What is ballpark their annual investment in just in the platform itself, like what they're paying to Salesforce? So in the nonprofit industry, Salesforce is actually very generous that they offer 10 free user licenses, which are normally, I think, oh, I'm not going to make up some numbers now that are going to be wrong, but big numbers. We're talking about hundreds of dollars per user per month kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in the nonprofit space, it's first free, first 10 are free. And then after that, it's like a nominal value of anywhere between 36 to $60 US per person per month. Okay. So for smaller nonprofits, it's a fantastic fit. There is no reoccurring costs. Uh, there's only one time cost usually for my services. Um, but for the larger ones, I mean, it can get quite large. We're talking about, it could be millions of dollars a year. Okay. So to, to bring someone in to maximize that they trust to maximize that investment makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Who who makes the decision? Who decides it's going to be Salesforce we're going to use? What like what are the couple of competitors? I know it's the the elephant, the I mean the the gorilla, the four hundred pound gorilla. But what are the other considerations? And who makes the final decision in a in a case where it is going to be annual? You know, it's going to cost them seven figures a year. Are you talking about who who makes the decision to purchase Salesforce yeah. or purchase my services? Salesforce is like uh, CIO. Yeah. A CIO or executive director in the case for a non, okay. of a nonprofit, ED, we call right, it. Right, right. Okay, perfect. Or it could be, a, could be a board, though, too. They might have a board uh, that they have to respond to mm -hmm. um, to get approval from the board. Okay. And what, what would they consider as alternatives? Uh, so I'm not usually part of the sales process. Usually at, when I'm contacted, they've already made the decision or are just about to click the button to, to buy, to purchase yep. now kind of thing. Um and, and I always admit that Salesforce is a great CRM. It's a great platform. It's not always the best fit for every single client or every single nonprofit in my case. Mm -hmm. There are some wonderful CRMs that are more tailored to very specific needs. But the idea of, of Salesforce is it's very extensible and very adaptable. You can do anything with it. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think we had a back and forth about one of my comics <laughs> about Salesforce, but that's a story for a different day. Okay, so uh, the reason why I was asking was to make a point for the dear listener about to, I mean, I said it already, but I want to say it explicitly that if, if a company is spending a million dollars a year on something, then it's a pretty easy bet that de-risking that or increasing the, the ROI on that investment makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as Alex said earlier, the numbers can be staggering because in a large organization, the, the downstream benefits are ginormous. You know, they, they, like if you do something wrong at the, at the headwaters, at the top of the river, then everyone's going to suffer from that downstream. But if you do something right, then everyone's going to benefit downstream. So the, the value that you offer as someone like an architect that's making decisions that are way, way upstream, it's just magnified over and over and over downstream. So it just makes tons of sense. It's like, it, it seems crazy at first because 
you know, a lot of, a lot of folks who are listening are a company of one or very small, but it's so that, so it's easy to kind of sell to your own wallet and think like, oh, well, you know, no one would ever pay more than X for anything. Like, how can I, how could I imagine, how can I keep it with a straight face, send this proposal for like $1.5 million or I'm not saying you do that, but how can just little old me with a four page template, a proposal template, send a, a, a proposal for seven figures, how could that even make what in what universe does that make sense? Well, in a value based universe, it makes sense if the client has a huge investment, a huge bet. If they went to the board and got the thing approved, if if the executive director went to the board, got the sales force improved, and then the the integration project or whatever you would call it, like go sideways, see ya, they'll probably remove the person. It certainly would be a possibility. So there's a lot of risk on the person who made the decision, which was why you know, long story short, why I asked who's the person that decides because that person's head's going to be a chopping block if the project goes sideways. Uh, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. Like, have you ever heard such a story? Have you ever do Salesforce projects ever go sideways? Is there ever fallout from that? All the time, all okay. the time. Actually, it's what, in that um, in that project space that I do, uh, one of them is where I have to parachute in to rescue them from another implementation. An mm -hmm. agency just went, either an agency didn't do it right, or um, someone internally thought they I know about you know I know a bit about software. I can do this thing called Salesforce, <laughs> and then not build a scalable module modular type of architecture. Right. And then sure enough, after a certain point, you know, usability goes down. People are wondering, you know, why are we paying so much to get so little out of it? So let's call in an expert to help us, you know, assess and audit and then re make recommendations of how to get out of this mess. So yeah, mm. definitely many ways it can go wrong because it is a platform because you can do anything. The flip side is you can do anything and, and <laughs> there are some negative consequences to that. Sure. Enough rope to hang yourself. So what is, let's talk about, let's talk about, it sounds like you might sell a, an audit or an assessment or a roadmap or something like that. Is that true? I want to get there. I've done it before, and I am actually in the process of trying to figure out how to make it into a more productized service where I can do a you know buy now button. Mm -hmm. But even then, the price point at five figures, I can't imagine too many organizations doing it without contacting me first, without having a conversation. So as much as it sounds like a great idea, I'm looking for something a bit smaller than that that I can sink my teeth into and offer and be able to have that buy now button. Got it. Yeah. When they start to get into mid five figures, it start, you end up on the phone. Usually, not always, but usually what happens is before, you know, somebody has to get approval from somewhere and they're not just going to click a button. Like there's nothing they can swipe. They're not going to put in their ACH information into some anonymous website. You'd need to be really famous, really famous for somebody to do that. Um, okay. So speaking of a buy now button, let's jump over to the product product side of the business. So tell us a little bit about what this application is. A lot of software developers listening, so you can get nerdy if you want. What and I know virtually nothing about Salesforce. Uh, I I understand the concept. I understand the concept of an app store or whatever it's called there. But what does that what does that look like from the creation standpoint? So just speaking like a software developer, not the not your users' experience, but from the software developer developer experience, what is it like to create a Salesforce app or what? Tell me what you call it. Yeah, we do call it an app or a package. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, so Salesforce does a lot of things. Out of the box, it has a lot of power and functionality, like I mentioned. 
but it doesn't do everything. And there are some, there are hundreds of use cases where it needs to do something that it doesn't do. For example, mass emailing. Uh, it has a limit of how many emails it can send out per day. If you want to send out tens of thousands or millions per day, you need another system. Mm-hmm. So having an add-on either to a, a mass mailer of some kind would be an integration, an app you could build. Let's talk about, let's say, Amazon SES, the simple email service. Yep. So you could build an app that allows um, you to send emails kind of like it's from or sent out from Salesforce, but it's really using the Amazon SES platform. And you could charge for that based on you know how many users are using it or uh, how often it's used or some kind of usage-based system. Mm-hmm. So uh, and uh, so there's a whole app store. It's called the App Exchange, where you can. It's a marketplace. You can install the apps, uh, or anyone can install apps once you've got Salesforce within certain requirements. And usually, it's um, a monthly subscription, a SaaS-based product. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are free up until I guess assume thousands per month. I guess is the higher end of things. Yep. And then my app is specific to uh, Canadian nonprofits, and it's for tax receiving purposes. So you as a donor, when you make a donation to a charitable organization, you're usually eligible for a tax receipt for income. And then uh, it doesn't do that in natively within Salesforce. So I've built on top of that platform an app that generates a tax receipt with a PDF. You can email it and so on and so forth. Mm, okay. What? Let's get nerdy for a second. What is that? What is that? How do you, how do we even ask this question? Here's, here's what I'm imagining. <laughs> here's what I'm imagining it is. You've got some essentially SaaS set up on AWS or wherever, and you have some glue code that actually gets air quotes installed in their instance of Salesforce or their account. And it talks to an API that does some stuff and manages like the, 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 the tax, re- the, the actual function, but also, well, no, because the subscription would probably be handled by Salesforce. So who, who pays you Salesforce or the customer? Yeah, it's, it's a customer. So uh, I'll jump in here to help you out a bit. Yeah, the idea is that, <laughs> so Salesforce again is a, is a platform. It has uh, a programming language built into it, which kind of looks like Java, but it's called Apex. Okay. It also has some low code, no code type solutions as well. So you can build in on the platform itself i've seen uh oh, there are, cool okay there are so you're apps not like itself, hosting example, your own no no it's, it's all hosted internally on salesforce uh platform they were actually one of the first one of the largest and first SaaS products ever uh like at the time everyone the siebel platform was always um on-premise on-prem mm-hmm. they called it mm-hmm. so you had to have your own servers your own infrastructure your own network engineers and so forth versus Salesforce was fully, fully cloud-based. Everything's in the cloud, everything you do in the cloud. So there's a huge shift in mentality around there, mm-hmm. but it is it is an extensible platform. So uh, you're, you're building everything on that platform and you've got basically instances that you own. So you, you're, you, you are renting an instance of Salesforce built for your company, for your organization, mm-hmm. and you're running on their servers. And then you can add your own functionality locally, or you can install this package or an app to extend the platform even further. Got it. So the way that I'm building it is on my instance of Salesforce, I'm building this package, knowing what the sale, what the, my client's instance looks like. It's almost like a mirror, a generic mirror of it. Yep. I'm building the app locally. I'm There's a functionality that allows you to wrap it up into a package, publish it on the app exchange, the platform, and then my client can download it from there. Wild. Okay. I did not realize that. So to put it for uh, you know people that are maybe aren't technical that are listening kind of as aws built inside like they've got their own aws mm-hmm. that 
so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You can, you just, you do all of your development using Apex, I think you said, like in their in development environment. Is that all true? Yeah, it, it, you don't necessarily need to use Apex. It is available to you. Uh, but the idea is that it's a combination of, for example, I need to add an extra field on the contact table yep. to say, for example, to specify, do you want your receipt to be done, uh, sent by mail or email? So that's a preference that I add as part of my package. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the, the functionality elements of it, there's a data model portion of it as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, wild. All right, that's cool. Okay, so now if we look at it what's the oh god do I, i'm trying to decide if this is going to be interesting <laughs> to the the audience it's very interesting to me and uh, i'll just assume that those two things overlap so is there as a developer not the development piece but the experience of publishing it and and being in the app exchange what's that experience like let's say we're talking to someone who's listening that is a developer and is like Oh, wow. Maybe I want to go develop Salesforce apps. And like, what, what's that? Ex and as my only job, what's that life look like? Is, do they have to get approved? Is there some kind of like certification? Is, you know, uh, what are the surprises, I guess, when you are publishing stuff in the Salesforce app exchange? Yeah. I'm happy to answer all that. And I can tie it into the overall picture of how it fits within my, um, portfolio of services as Perfect. well. Yeah. Great. So the first part, um, the idea is, yeah, I mean, there are definitely, there are companies out there that base their entire, um, their entire uh, success on building apps for the, um, for Salesforce. Mm -hmm. um, and I already lost track of the question. So the question uh, is, what is it, what is it, if I decide I want to do that, what, mm -hmm. is, what are the surprises? Like, like, oh my, because you know, I, I, I'm really familiar with from back in the day when the iOS app store first came out when it wasn't even called iOS. And there was a lot of surprise, lots of surprises for first time app developers is like, is this, is this like not the case with Salesforce? Like, Oh no, you just like sign up for a developer account. It's free. You could, you know, in, in five minutes you can have code running and they approve everything in 10 seconds and boom, you're making money. Yeah. So you're right. Then there are definitely some restraints and constraints um, you, because it's a cloud-based software, you have to respect certain limits in terms of like GPU, CPU usage mm -hmm. and, and how many operations you can do in a transaction to get really technical. Yeah. Like generating PDFs, uh, for example. Exactly. And then you want to be as native as possible to the Salesforce platform in terms of the idea of you don't want to have, there, there are some applications. Let's go for that mass emailer. You know, we were using Amazon SES as an actual emailer that obviously uses an external system outside of Salesforce. That's known more of a hybrid app. You might have a, a portion of your app or your package on the Salesforce side, but most of it's lying. The functionality, the core functionality lies in Amazon. Mm -hmm. That's more of a hybrid model versus a native Salesforce, which means everything stays uh, within the Salesforce platform, nothing, no information leaves the Salesforce platform. And that's very attractive to people, especially who are, uh, who are very cautious about their personal information being shared across other third parties and so forth. Right. So that's definitely a consideration. There's also an approval process in order for the, your app to be published on their app exchange. It has to go through a Salesforce security review. There's a whole process involved in that. And they have to basically sign off saying, yeah, it is safe to use, uh, so to speak. Okay. And then how long does the that idea, 
Uh, it varies apparently. I haven't gone through that myself. I'm, I'm actually at that step right now. So I can let you know in a couple of weeks from now, but it's <laughs> some, I believe it's like two to f two weeks to eight weeks long, approximately, depending on the size of the, of the app. Okay. Non-trivial. Okay. And then the, the main element, the main difference I've noticed is that you really learn as a developer, uh, the ins and out of the platform itself, the limitations, because you're scratching those limitations more often than not building projects. Yep. And you always have to keep in mind, as you're building an app as opposed to a custom project for a client is that this app is going to be used now for many clients so i have to do the 80 20 rule well you know, even though a particular client might want a particular feature if it doesn't make sense for any other client then i won't add it to the product so sure. having that a higher level perspective on what should be added to the product versus what shouldn't be is an important uh, differentiator perfect all right great well that brings us i think that's a perfect segue into how does this fit into your overall business strategically because you're kind of like like if i didn't know you were doing well and not overworking it would sound like you have way too many things going on like just let, like like just let's recap you do a daily email list or is it monday through friday monday through friday monday through friday weekly podcast weekly podcast okay with guests and with guests. so there's all that scheduling and back and forth and all that and you you know between you know, two large subscription clients, maybe two small subscription clients, the occasional project, and you're about to launch a software product. And you have, do you have, I didn't ask, do you have any employee? Did we talk about this? Do you have any employees or contractors or anything like that? I have a contractor helping me with the Apex development for the app, and that's it. Yeah. The rest so, is just me. Yeah. It's like insane level of productivity from the outside. That's how it sounds. And, and meanwhile, Lef improved your client relationships and doubled your income in the meanwhile, you know, at the same time. Yeah. It is great. a lot, but I, I love it. And it's about leverage. Yeah. And like, just imagine as you're listening to this, like since you're, since you're, um, exploring, let's call it, or learning Salesforce from all of these different levels so from all these different perspectives from your client perspectives and all the interesting things that their challenges they have and then you saw i'm assuming you saw this pattern in canada with the receipts issue and you're like oh maybe i should just th this seems like a lot of people have the same problem there's nothing in the market uh, the app exchange for it so maybe i'll just build this and then yeah so how does that how does that does it is it are you imagining that it's going to be people's first experience of your brand of your company are you going to use your same company name your consulting company name and that's going to be maybe a, an entry point where you do custom development on top of your own product and that'll become a lead source or how does it fit in i definitely do add uh, or offer rather additional services on top of the uh, app so if if another salesforce agency wants to install my app to the client i can just be hands off you know be just sell the app and be done with it or i can be more white glove and install it and configure it and you know add additional receipt templates and so forth uh, or i can be part of a, another team so i am scalable in that regard but the concept is really to have it more of as an app because there was a need and i felt i could build a, a better solution mm. Um, and the idea was to diversify my portfolio. So it's not just project work. As, as I'm getting older, I'm trying to move a bit more away from actual project work to do more advising. And, you know, having a SaaS based product is great because, you know, making money when you, when you sleep is a great, uh, feeling. Yeah. Uh, and in more stable reoccurring income as opposed to the highs and lows of, of project work. Right. So much more predictable. Mm -hmm. All right. Is that, how do you go about? This is pretty far. This is probably not that interesting to the bulk of the audience, but for future reference, 
how much do you how do you price such a thing? You said that the prices range from sort of freemium up to thousands per month. In your particular case, have you already thought about the pricing? What what strategically speaking is it going to make more sense to air more toward or skew more toward the freemium end of the spectrum or the four figures end of the spectrum? Yeah, that we, I'm still working on the pricing model and making and tweaking it, let's say, adjusting it as needed. But the idea is I wanted uh, fixed prices, um, even though there's a usage base element to my app, because I do depend on a certain web service to do some merging of PDFs as a, as a feature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I offer basically two editions of my app, a basic edition and a pro edition. And that pro edition has that usage base component, which is variable. I mean, it could cost me more than it costs the client, but we'll see where that goes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is I wanted something, again, very structured, very simple for the client, uh, brainless. So I just take, I say, depending on your annual revenue, if you're within a certain range, here's the price. And the price just increases as that revenue increases. So let's say if you are a nonprofit that makes less than a million dollars, your price is A or B, depending on if it's pro or um, basic edition. Mm -hmm. If you are between a million and 10 million, it's this and so on and so forth. How does, I'm shocked that, does Salesforce support that kind of pricing natively or do you just have like you know a a matrix of let's say there's you know four tiers times uh, two prices and there's there's basically like eight uh, just a big long list of eight and just like honor system pick the one that is appropriate and so salesforce will encourage you to any pricing you want there is usage base there's uh, per seat there is per company there's freemium uh and the only thing I'll add to that is the fact that if it is posted, if the app is posted on their app exchange, they do take a cut of 15%. Mm, okay. So you also want to take that into consideration as well. You don't have to necessarily have it on the app exchange, but it definitely gets you a lot more eyeballs. Right. And it's definitely where I want to go to be able to separate myself from my competition who are not on the app exchange. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, in one sense, because you could imagine if, if you thought you were going to build a services business on top of this app where you like, you release like a base functionality like you said 80 20 rule like what what's the basic thing that everyone's going to need and you become the dominant player for that particular feature then who are they going to call you know if they know that you offer customization who are they going to call so but it sounds like long term you would rather move away from that uh maybe a long time from now because it sounds like you love coding it or whatever working on it but if you were going to move away from that to that more predictable recurring app income it seems you know it seems like you might want to use the however much it costs as real income and not just sort of like nice to have money that really is acting as marketing for you it is definitely a lead magnet of some kind i haven't positioned it quite like that yet but i can see it moving into that space Mm, interesting and does the i don't i mean what about the the annual revenue or if it's called revenue for a nonprofit, like, is it just honor system or do you talk to them before they buy it or can they click buy now and just say like, yeah, this is how much we're doing per year. So we'll pick this level. Uh, it is, no, we have to have a conversation so they can kind of buy now they can install it, but it doesn't, I have to enable it basically on my side. So I do have checks and balances on my side to make sure. And it, I mean, if the, if the nonprofit does grow, I, I don't know what I would do yet. Uh, <laughs> I don't have enough clients to be able to make that call, but 
I don't mind the idea again that the whole space, the whole nonprofit space is such a wonderful space to be in that it's, it's not so, like I said, bloodthirsty, cutthroat yeah. type situation. Right. If they moved up a rank, I don't know if I would care. If they use it like extensively and they had, you know, crazy numbers in terms of using that extra feature usage base that costs me a lot of money, maybe we'd have a conversation, but otherwise I'd probably leave it as is. Right. Yeah. And oh, I should yeah. add that the first okay. client I had, so I, I imagine I just published the app, first app, first client, super excited. They wanted to sign a 10-year contract with me. <laughs> and I was it's I was good. floored. I, I, I loved it. I loved the idea. I said, there's no way I can do it. I'm, you know, I'm too green. Yeah. Uh, we agreed on a, on a, on a three-year fixed price and then a certain percent in, in, increase after that. But the, the concept that they were ready to invest that kind of, uh, you know, term with me was, yeah. was amazing. It, it validated so much that, of the work that I've done. I mean, it took two and a half years to build the thing. So it was a, a, a wonderful moment of um, jubilation. Yeah, validation too. And, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair question too. Like if someone was thinking, oh, I'm going to build a, a non-trivial app for Salesforce, what are they, what, what is the cautionary tale, if any, that you would share with that person? It takes longer than you expect. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm one person, so it, did, it wasn't like an ongoing full-time, you know, 10 hours a week type situation for two and a half years. It was an on and off situation as my motivation uh, fluctuated. Mm -hmm. But the idea is it always takes longer than expected. Uh, there are a lot of clicks to be done. Just packaging up your, your app and publishing it and, and making sure that there are certain checks and balances. And again, so, you know, making sure it complies to all the security restrictions. It, it's a bit more complex than just building a custom uh, project on one client's Salesforce instance. Right. Okay. All right. Wow. I mean, this, this is like a tour de force of all the, <laughs> all the possible business models that, uh, that a, a sort of, I mean, do you consider yourself a developer or would you consider yourself more of an architect or just a software consultant? I stopped building software more than 10 years ago. I, I had a couple of side projects. Uh, actually, I built my own accounting software at some point. Um, but no, I, I, at this point, I'm architect all the way. And for the for the Apex development for my app, I do have a developer that's dedicated to it because they're just so specialized and so good at what they do uh, that I can barely read their their code anymore. So yeah. yeah, architect at this point. Okay, so just a tour de force of sort of diversified. I mean, it's all it's like you've ticked every box in terms of like the ways that you can price things, the types of things that you can price, but it's all revolving around this particular Salesforce expertise, technical mm -hmm. expertise around Salesforce, very specific and crossed with, or sort of like intersecting with a target market in the nonprofit space. And the, like it, it sounds, I mean, based on your success, at least post hourly in only two years, it sounds like you've got it dialed in. You've got your sort of positioning at just sketch dialed right into a spot where there's a lot of interest and a lot of value being created. So yeah, this is, I, I, I expect a lot of people are going to be re-listening to this episode, um, over, you know, like every three months, I'm going to go back and listen to that Alex episode. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for joining me. I, I think I'm looking at the clock. I know we both have to run. So where can people go to find out more about what you're doing and maybe connect with you online? Yeah, the best way to reach me is on my website, which is uh, dryadconsulting.com, D-R-Y-A-D consulting.com. And I have the newsletter for Salesforce consultants, which is thegoodenoughconsultant.com. And the podcast? Uh, podcast is uh, Agents of Nonprofit. And it's basically also talking to superheroes in the nonprofit space uh, and a great way to network with people and have great conversations. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. 
It's my pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.